Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 267. It's titled, Why Capitalism Goes Off Track. Back when I was in college, I worked for a polling company. We would ask the people we called whether they believed the U.S. was on the right track or the wrong track. There's been discussion in this presidential election as to whether capitalism still works for everyone. Is capitalism off track? Is there a better system? I believe the free market system still is the best, but there's some things that happen that get it off track. Last month, the Business Roundtable announced a new statement on the purpose of a corporation. It was signed by 181 CEOs who commit to lead their companies to the benefit of all stakeholders. That's customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders. That's from the press release. The Business Roundtable is a nonprofit association whose members are the chief executive officers of major U.S. corporations. They promise to do their part to get capitalism back on track. In this episode, we'll see what that will actually take, both leaders of businesses as well as ourselves as consumers. The statement on the purpose of a corporation, they believe it's the role of business to deliver value to customers, invest in their employees, which they say starts with compensating them fairly and providing important benefits. The role of business is to deal fairly and ethically with suppliers, support the communities in which they work, and finally, generate long-term value for shareholders who provide the capital that allow the companies to invest, grow, and innovate. Then there's the gig economy. Amelia Estrade and Jonathan Harris wrote a piece for the National Association of Counties and described what the gig economy is. They said it's made up of three main components. Independent workers paid by the gig or a task or project as opposed to workers who receive a salary or hourly wage. That's one element. Two is consumers who need a specific service, for example, a ride to their next destination, or they might need a particular item delivered. And finally, you have an app-based technology platform, Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, DoorDash, that act as a medium between the independent worker and the consumer that wants that temporary task. This past week, my daughter and I, we worked in the gig economy. She was a few weeks before she starts working potato harvest and just needed some temporary employment. She applied to Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Postmates. Only DoorDash approved her right away, and so we started. I was the assistant. I wanted to make sure she was safe and just to see how it worked. DoorDash is a food delivery service. They just raised another $600 million. They're valued at $12 billion. They're not profitable. In the press release where they announced that they were raising more money, they mentioned gross merchandise value grew at 280% year on year. That's the value of the food they're delivering. That's not their revenue. It's not their profits. It's how much food they're delivering. 
restaurant meals. They serve diners in more than 4,000 cities. Their independent contractors deliver orders from more than 340,000 stores in the U.S. and Canada. My daughter downloaded the DoorDash app on her phone. We went to our first shift in Rexburg, Idaho. We earned nothing. It was a morning shift. We sat in our hot spot near Main Street in Rexburg, Idaho, waiting for that first order. Nothing. The next shift started at 11 a.m. It was a two-and-a-half-hour shift. We delivered a number of orders. Rexburg's kind of a small town. Gross revenue, $18 for two-and-a-half hours. We drove 10 miles. Here's the thing about DoorDash. Most of the drivers don't factor in the true cost. There's gasoline. There's insurance. There's wear and tear on the cars. There's repairs, depreciation, just the value of the car falling. AAA, the American Automobile Association, does a study each year on the hidden cost of a car with regards to some of these items that I mentioned. They estimate the average car costs 59 cents per mile to drive. That needs to be factored in. So if we drove 10 miles, that's $5.90 in terms of wear and tear on the car, which meant that for the two and a half hours, we netted $4.84 an hour. The next day, we took an evening shift during dinner in Idaho Falls. For two hours and 15 minutes, we drove. It was absolutely crazy. We did some of our initial orders, and then they suggest we go to Buffalo Wild Wings to pick up an order. We go there. The system was down. The order wasn't ready. So we dropped off another order that we picked up, and then they started sending more orders to us, even though we hadn't actually picked up the food at Buffalo Wild Wings. While my daughter waited there, I drove over to a barbecue restaurant to pick up an order there, which they wouldn't give me because they said the individual hadn't paid. So I went back to pick up my daughter. It was an absolute madhouse. This is not an easy job. After two hours and 15 minutes, we had driven 30 miles. We made $7.24 an hour after factoring in wear and tear on the car. But that doesn't even take into account the biggest cost that these drivers take on. Insurance. If you go on DoorDash's website, there's a question. Does DoorDash have insurance? Yes, they said. DoorDash has a commercial auto insurance policy that covers up to $1 million in bodily injury and or property damage to third parties arising out of accidents while on an active delivery. To qualify as an on an active delivery, you must be in possession of the goods to be delivered. In other words, DoorDash only covers your liability once you've picked up the food. If you get in an accident on the way to the restaurant to pick up the food, you're not covered. So they say, yes, you need your own insurance. Quote, while doing a business as an independent contractor, you are required to maintain your own insurance in the amounts and of types required by law. 
which includes but is not limited to an auto insurance policy. I called my insurer to see if we were covered. She said, our policy doesn't cover food delivery. It's considered a commercial business. I couldn't even get an endorsement for it. In other words, a rider or something added on to my personal policy. As we were driving around, we were not insured. She said, if you get in an accident, call me first before you call the insurer. Commercial delivery insurance goes from $900 to $1,200 per year. I suspect the vast majority of independent contractors delivering food are completely uninsured. More importantly, as we were driving, I couldn't believe, why is everyone driving so slow? We have orders to deliver. I became a more aggressive driver. No wonder my personal auto insurance wouldn't cover me. And this is the way these apps are set up. Andy Newman for the New York Times rode for a number of the apps, just tried it out as a cyclist in New York. Newman said the apps roll out ever-changing and often confusing menus of bonuses and incentives borrowed from the video game and slot machine industries, engineered to convince riders that they may yet win as long as they keep playing. But with so many riders chasing the same prizes, they often fall short. Werner Zahani said the whole thing is like gambling. You have to be at a spot. You have to hope that there are orders there. And then do you stay at that spot or go somewhere else? This is not an easy job, and you're not making much money at it, and you have a huge insurance liability. The next day, I decided to place an order through DoorDash. I'd never ordered food there. About a $40 order from an Indian restaurant. DoorDash said the regular delivery fee is $3.99, but it would be free this time because I was new to the app. I wanted to see... What happens if I gave a very large tip? So I tipped $15. And then when the food came, I spoke with the driver. He earned $16 on the delivery. DoorDash gave him $1 and then gave him my $15 tip. On the app, and I saw the screen, he was guaranteed $10 for delivery. But because I gave a big tip, essentially my tip went to him and then DoorDash didn't have to pay him as much. And that's been somewhat controversial for DoorDash. Tips essentially subsidize the driver by the tips go to the driver. They get all the tips. But if you tip more, then DoorDash pays the drivers less. Here's the problem with a company like DoorDash and some of the other gig economy companies. And it's reflective of how capitalism has gone off track. There's a disconnect between what consumers are willing to pay and what it costs to deliver the food. McKinsey did a study, and they asked consumers in U.S., Germany, and China what they would be willing to pay in terms of having something delivered right away. And they found that only 15% would be willing to bear a surcharge of around 3 euro. Only 2% would be willing to pay significantly more for a delivery, an instant delivery, something delivered very, very quickly. They also found in their study that a typical driver, we saw this with DoorDash, generally you get two or three deliveries per hour. UPS, that's much more centralized, they might deliver 15 to 20 parcels per hour. 
on these gig economy deliveries, you're doing two to three per hour. The cost of that is about seven to ten dollars, McKinsey estimates, plus overhead. So there's a gap there. There's a gap between what consumers are willing to pay and what it actually costs in order to, for one, cover the insurance of the drivers. Now, how is that gap, that loss being covered? Well, partly by venture capital funding. They have to keep raising money because the losses are so great. So investors are essentially covering much of that loss. And we talked about that a few episodes ago when we talked about blitzscaling and how the average private company before it goes public is 10 to 12 years old and still hasn't figured out how to make a profit. So venture capital funding, investors are covering the gap between what it costs to deliver this food and what consumers are willing to pay. Restaurants cover the cost. DoorDash charges a commission to the restaurants. There was an article in the New York Times recently about India and the restaurants there are rebelling because they're not making enough money. And the article pointed out that the apps have made it easier for people to order takeout meals. And restaurants have gotten exposure to a larger audience of diners, but the platforms also charge hefty commissions on each order and can squeeze the profit margins of culinary establishments. In the United States, some restaurants have closed, unable to keep up with the cost of working with delivery apps. So that gap between the cost and what consumers are willing to pay is covered by the restaurants. And finally, it's covered by the independent contractors through lower wages, and through taking on this insurance liability, essentially driving uninsured. Now, I love the free market system because I love the idea that we have companies and individuals using innovation, finding solutions, discovering new business models. But it needs to be done in a way that everyone benefits. They can't be shifting cost to the workers. That was the whole point of what the roundtable was saying. We value our employees. We should value the independent contractors. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. NetSuite.com slash David. 
One of my virtual investment mentors was Seth Klarman, who runs the $27 billion hedge fund, the Baupost Group. I used to meet with Seth on an annual basis because he managed a large percent of one of my client's assets. He doesn't speak to the press very much, but recently did an interview with The New Yorker, and he gave a speech at Harvard about the responsibility of corporations. He said, Does anyone really believe that shareholders are the only constituency that matters? Not customers, not employees, not the community, or the country, or planet Earth? It's a choice to do things that maximize profits, to pay people as little as you can, or work them as hard as you can. It's a choice to maintain pleasant working conditions, or alternatively, particularly harsh ones, to offer good benefits or paltry ones. Klarman also talked about how it's a choice to leverage up a company, to borrow huge amounts of debt, to take a public company private, and then to pay a special dividends to owners in order for the private equity fund to show great returns, but then they walk away from the business because the business can't service the debt. The business is shut down. Many employees lose their jobs. That's also a choice. He says, when capitalism goes unchecked and unexamined and management is seduced by a narrow and myopic perspective, the pendulum can quickly swing in directions where capitalism's benefits are discounted and its flaws exaggerated. Capitalism works, but it only works if there's not a gap between what consumers and businesses pay for a service and what it costs to deliver it. And there needs to be a profit baked in. If the costs are higher than what consumers are willing to pay, somebody has to cover that cost. In the case of the gig economy, more often than not, it's the independent contractors. They're being shorted, not paid enough, covering liabilities that they're not even aware of. I asked this driver in DoorDash that I gave the tip to, have you checked to see if you're even insured for this? He said, no, he hadn't even called his insurer. A month or so ago, I got an email from a listener, and he, he was a little perturbed because I'd quoted Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who I've quoted before, that I appreciate how he invests, but there's many things about Taleb that I don't agree with. One was his view on regulation. This listener wrote, I grew up in a former steel mill town of Birmingham, Alabama, during the 1950s and the 1960s. I suffered from a variety of respiratory illnesses growing up that were caused or exacerbated by the miserable pre-EPA air quality in my hometown. I know from my own actual experience that the EPA caused this guy in Birmingham to change from brown to blue and that my bronchitis went away along with the pollution. Moreover, I know from my 30-plus years of experience as a lawyer that the mere threat of civil litigation has little, if any, deterrent effect on polluters. He realizes that sometimes you need regulation. One of the risks is that the regulation gets to be too great. Seth Klarman said, if every business person or enough business people don't act as stewards of more than just the bottom line, somebody's going to come along and do it for them. 
And that's what regulation does. It's because businesses don't self-regulate and they're passing on cost, in this case, poor air quality to individuals that suffer from it, like this listener did. Now this listener is the general counsel of a retail food and beverage company that his son started. And he realizes why there's some regulations. Sensible regulations, as he says, assuming such a thing exists, is generally going to be better idea than litigation for making businesses behave. While litigation is sometimes necessary, it's a blunt instrument that is expensive, slow, and ineffective in addressing most problems. If corporations were better stewards, if they treated their workers more fairly, if they were more fair to their communities, then we wouldn't need so much regulation. Now, there's another downside to not treating workers fairly. It can lead to financial crises. There's a paper titled Inequality, Leverage, and Crises by Michael Kumhoff, Romain Ranciere, and Pablo Winant. They looked at the Great Recession of 2008 and the Great Depression of 1929, and they found a striking similarity between the two of them. They wrote that both crises were preceded over a period of decades by a sharp increase in income inequality and by a similarly sharp increase in debt-to-income ratios among lower- and middle-income households. When debt levels started to be perceived as unsustainable, they contributed to triggering exceptionally deep financial and real crisis. They found there were two groups. There was the top 5% who were gaining more and more wealth, and then there was the bottom that were just getting by because they weren't making enough in their jobs, but they continued to spend because they took on debt. And eventually the debt gets too high. And when the debt gets too high for households, now the debt has come down as households, in some cases defaulted, in other cases chose not to spend and pay down debt. But this income inequality creates uncertainty for business. Michael Pettis wrote in Barron's, for the past hundred years, investment has not been constrained by the cost of capital. In other words, by the abilities of businesses to borrow money, they've been able to borrow at extremely low rates. But Pettis continues, investment has not been constrained by the cost of capital, but by concerns about whether there will be enough demand to justify building additional capacity. Businesses today have access to near unlimited amounts of capital at historically low interest rates, but find little reason to invest because the demand for their production is not growing quickly enough to justify more investment. In this environment, income inequality is a drag on the economy. When U.S. businesses find it easy to raise money, rising inequality makes it harder for them to justify additional capital spending. It leads to a slower-growing economy because most of the participants can't afford to buy stuff because of their debt levels or they're afraid to buy. And then businesses are afraid to invest in new projects because they're concerned whether There'll be demand for it. So instead, they buy back stock and reward the existing shareholders because as they buy back stock, and it's been huge, over $600 billion of buybacks in the last year in the U.S. 
and it increases earnings per share because there's less shares outstanding. The executives are rewarded because oftentimes the stock price goes up because earnings are going up, even though aggregate earnings might not be going up and the company is not investing in the future. It's just a gimmick. Pettis concludes, when business investment is constrained only by expected future consumption rather than the cost of capital, income concentration leads to both lower consumption and lower investment. If income were more widely distributed, the U.S. economy would grow faster and would be able to avoid the rising indebtedness that would otherwise be needed to sustain consumption. Now, the U.S. and the world is not in a situation where another great financial crisis like 1929 or 2008 is imminent. Even if we enter into a recession, debt levels have been brought down. As I mentioned, sometimes through default, sometimes through just paying off the debt. U.S. households have about $13.5 trillion of debt. 71% is tied to mortgage loans. The other is student loan debt. So student loan debt has increased over the past decade. It's more than doubled to $1.4 trillion. Credit card debt has stayed about the same at $0.8 trillion. Auto loans are up about 50% at $1.2 trillion. But it's not just the absolute debt balance. It's the ability to service the debt. And so as interest rates have come down, it's been easier for households to service the debt. The Federal Reserve does a measure of household debt service payments as a percent of disposable income or income after taxes. And right now, it's about 10%. It came down from its peak in 2008 of over 13%. The BIS has calculated and found that this ability to service debt is a great recession indicator. They found in the last three recessions, this debt service ratio peaked right before the recession. And we're far below those previous peaks currently. Doesn't mean a recession can't come, but it means that its severity probably will not be as great as we saw in 2008. Capitalism goes off track if it's dependent on the majority of of households taking on more and more debt because of income inequality. It just isn't sustainable. Capitalism is off track if the business models don't capture the entire cost. In other words, if households and businesses' willingness to pay for a given service isn't enough to cover the cost to deliver those services, so businesses pass those costs on to others, be it independent contractors, be it communities in terms of the environment. Those are called externalities. So what can we do? Well, if we own businesses, we can pay workers and contractors fairly. And as consumers, we can pay a fair price. We can step back and think about, well, what is this business model? Is this item priced so that whoever made it or delivered the service can earn a fair wage? We don't have to be a business expert to figure out that. We can just step back and think about it. Maybe do a little bit of research. And three, we can support reasonable regulation if businesses refuse to regulate themselves and insist on passing on some of these externalities, these costs, onto the community. 
it's nice that the business roundtable wants to have a broader purpose for a corporation, not just to enhance or grow shareholder value, but be mindful of workers, the environment, and their communities. Seth Klarman, in that New Yorker piece, said, Evolving is usually called flip-flopping. But as humans, who are we if we don't evolve? I'm proud that I evolve because I think people who fail to evolve and learn are part of the problem. We can be part of the solution. We can change our behavior. Business can get back on track. The free enterprise system works. Business is trying to find solutions and innovations, but it's got to do so in a fair way. That's episode 267. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free Insider's Guide. I'll email those show notes to you each week, those links for the many articles I reference. And I also include an essay on money, investing, or the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to that email list that's not available on the public web. You can join that list at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>